Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Sophia Boyd-Flegel is a member of the class of 2021. She's a human biology major and creative writing minor. She studied creative nonfiction with Ed Porter and J.P. Grasser. This piece is called Measures, Movements. Eight wires hang from the telephone pole outside. From far away, it might appear as just one wire, thin and alone, swaggering above the concrete. But I can see that there are more from the living room. The wires sprout from this pole at odd angles, a black web that confuses me when I'm young. The closest pull cuts my reflection in half, but I can still make out my hands as I practice. What I want is a real violin. It will wear strings of silver on its neck, fused to wood that's glossy and red. It will be carved to sound especially deep, and I will make it sound even deeper. I'll be able to play anything in the world. But first, I must learn to hold this toy. It's a cardboard box attached to a plastic ruler. I must learn to hold my body like a real violinist and also how to count. My assignment is to watch my torso in the window and count how many times I've practiced first position. I curl my left fingers around the ruler again and again. I want to hold my body so still my back so straight, my little crown lifted, like my teacher said. I use the telephone poles to count. If I don't lose track, each pole will help me remember how many times I've taken first position. The way I learned to hear music is by a curriculum invented after World War II to better the lives of Japanese children. Shinichi Suzuki believed that music was best learned through immersion. He called it a mother tongue approach. He believed that anyone, even children of war, could learn to play if only they had the proper environment. Suzuki wanted his young students to obtain not only fluency, but a sensitivity, discipline, and endurance of the mind. Per the pedagogy, parents of Suzuki students attend each lesson so as to bring this structure to the home. Suzuki's perfect student will emerge from her studies with what he called a beautiful heart. I get the sex talk pretty early, maybe first or second grade. My mother worked at the AIDS Foundation in Seattle in the 90s. She'd seen the lethal effects of poor education. She talked about her clients, their physical appearances. I'd never seen their faces, but she said they could become unrecognizably sunken. Hollow eyes, hollow cheeks, fallen chests that make coats look empty. Public schools started teaching sex ed in fourth grade. Each year brought an increasingly complicated curriculum 
of biology and anatomy, fetal development, and safety. I even took a sex ed course at my church in 7th and 8th grade that included spirituality and healthy relationship advice. But even I, with all my sexual ed, was not completely stripped of budding curiosities. Suzuki's immersion method teaches children first by ear. Once a student proves herself able to hold a miniature violin, practice becomes a game of imitation. Volume one starts with Twinkle Twinkle and works up to very simple Bach. There are recordings my parents are supposed to play, so I might passively absorb the curriculum. My ears know instantly, fingers follow, and I never do learn to trust my eyes. By 12, I'm learning entire symphonies in reverse, memorizing the sounds first, only pretending to read the page. I abandoned my classical training by 14. This is the same age I stopped being good at math, and I think often on the straightness of my straight hair. I still play, but I no longer count telephone poles or hold my back straight. I develop a habit of playing with my eyes closed, not because it's effortless, but because I prefer notes never written, where there's no degree to which I can be wrong. The first time I talked to Alexander was on Facebook Messenger, although I knew well before who he was. If, in high school orchestra, I was a high-functioning illiterate, he was the poet laureate. I developed a habit of watching the cues of his violin instead of the conductor. Alexander played his cadenza like he was entitled to it. His fingers sprinted across the strings, each run spilling too quickly into the next, and he never failed to take just longer than necessary to emphasize the dissonant chords. His hubris was equal parts immature and captivating. Alexander was my first real crush. It helped that he was older, 18 to my 14. If only I could quickly reference a famous composer or something from NPR, would I pull off a charade of precocity? Would he be impressed with how much I knew about sex? Each messenger ping brought me closer to what I wanted to know and further from what I already did. Before I had my first cell phone or my first period, I was slipping deadbolts and skipping floorboards. I knew full well we both had reputations to avoid. Il cadenza, literally, the falling, a maneuver taught in Suzuki's very last lessons. The cadenza is the moment at the end of a solo concerto, when the orchestra drops out. The soloist is naked. The soloist is free from the constraints of accompaniment. It's in the first movement of Tchaikovsky's violin concerto, Allegro Moderato, where the cadenza is most dramatic. Chike's violinist and orchestra flirt for about 10 minutes before the violin takes off in its own D major escapade. Virtuosic, graceful, impressive, everything a self-respecting Russian composition should be. I had never attempted a written cadenza. The notes always looked too close together. Instead, I would make pretend. Passages of Bach or themes from Barber, anything, could be thrown into my collage of measures. I listened my way through these constructions until I reached my own tonic chord. This, however, was a practice done in private. An amateur shuffling illustrious repertoire is always taboo. 
We couldn't go on dates because we weren't dating. We would, however, drive across Lake Washington on the bridge from my house to his. The bridge is the longest floating bridge in the world. It rests directly on the water. On still days, the bridge cuts the reflections of the water in half like a cracked mirror. I remember one windy day asking my mother about the lake on the way to a music lesson. The south side of the lake frothed white, gray water lashed at the concrete. The north side was so calm, I could see the mountains in it. She told me as we drove east that the floating bridge separated boiling water from ice. This part, infernal dance, this is the best movement. I looked out the window to the water. It was the north that now boiled to the leaps of Stravinsky's firebird. Alexander played his favorite pieces. I feigned intimate recognition. Firebird played, we listened. He talked, I listened. The firebird is a common character in Russian folklore, sometimes the object of a quest, but always a mixed omen, bringing both fortune and disaster to its captor. In Stravinsky's ballet, the firebird is half bird, half woman, who begs for her release after being captured by the hero, Prince Ivan. She gives him a magic feather of fire from her flaming wings, which he can use at any time to summon her. Sometimes, without saying anything, Alexander would take his right hand off the wheel and in it, take my left, which I liked. Sometimes, without asking, he would slip his hand past mine and put it between my legs. I wasn't sure how to feel, other than like a falling. I wanted to hold my body so still, my back so straight. I'd close my eyes as if to ease the low feeling in my belly. Prince Ivan summons the firebird to destroy the monsters that are guarding his princess. The firebird puts the monsters under a spell. She makes them dance the infernal dance. You know I'm not going to have sex with you, right? I let the question roll off, staring out the window at Lake Washington, like I hadn't been building up the courage to tell him since the first time we did this. Of course, you replied. I'd had years of lessons and knew the good theories. Suzuki's best students were to develop sensitivity, discipline, and endurance. Had I stopped too early? Yet, he added. What? I know you're not going to have sex with me. Yet. I laughed a short laugh of discord. The tension became a familiar one, one I was willing to ignore, because it meant he cared. Evidently, there was a difference between my theories and my practice. I focused instead on Mendelssohn's second, the Broch Concerto, Allegro Moto Appassionato, brisk but with passion. It was that year that I began to study the classics. Alone in my bedroom, I obsessed over one measure at a time from the fugue of Bach's G minor sonata. Each bar was criminally slow. One measure for five minutes, one measure an hour. The format of each fugue is the same. They begin with a theme, the subject it's called, that's iterated throughout the piece at different tonal origins. The fugue follows three consistent segments, the exposition, the development, and ends with the coda. During the exposition, each voice of a fugue will introduce itself sequentially 
until they've braided together, each voice adding a new facet to the subject. I tried to work backwards and orally mimic the fugue. In Bach's violin fugues, there are four voices, one for each string. The clamor of the voices, though, proved this unwise strategy truly impossible. The challenge of the fugue is playing each voice as a distinct character. These characters are meant to speak the same words with entirely different meanings. They also speak simultaneously. I couldn't hear them all at once, so I gave each character a color. I worked through every measure, assigning the stacked notes in each polytonal chord to the appropriate character with highlighters. Red was the middle voice, the hero, who spoke first from the silence, confident and measured. Yellow was the top voice that came in soon after with an identical refrain, shy, admiring mimicry. I wanted Green to mock them both, lower and older, jaded of love. Blue ran through the piece as the deepest notes. Blue had seen it all before, but was neither aloof nor jealous. Blue was there to anchor and to tell the truth. Fugue, from the Latin word fuga, is related to fugere, to chase, but really derived from fugare, to flee. The difference in these characters, the chaste and the chaser, is one letter. But I do not have to invent a story to remember that. Five years later, and he still lives across the bridge. Only now it's the Bay Bridge or the Golden Gate, depending on traffic. I've never gone out of my way to see Alexander, but I've run into him at the airport twice. The first time, on the bench next to baggage claim, I asked him how he was doing, and he told me his mother was dying. He, an only child. She, a single mom. I met her once, but I don't remember much because I was sternly focused on faking my age. The second time, I caught a ride with him. He told me then that she was gone. Her last job was as a STEM fellow for the U.S. Department of Education, where she was responsible for transitioning the DOE's STEM agenda from the Obama to Trump administration. Obama wrote a letter of condolence that's attached to the Seattle Times obituary. Her obituary also talks about how much she loved art. I imagine she bent to all of Alexander's earliest Suzuki lessons, when he was taught music like a second language. She'd been to all the momentous recitals and concerts. I imagine he'd played beautiful Russian compositions for her when she was so sick and she could only listen. I imagine that in those last days, when endings felt close but never quite real, he'd take her hand in his and play her the songs about the firebird, the mythic creature, both a blessing and a curse. I imagine this as I settle into the same passenger seat from years before, looking out the window at the bay. Here, there is a moment before either of us says anything, when I know we are both thinking about impossible apologies. Here, whatever words we are about to say, we'll never do. Silence is the leading voice. There is a depth to it. We sit and we listen to the rest in this measure of this movement.
Hi, Sophia. Hello. Thank you so much for being here on Off the Page. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about what inspired this essay and how you went about putting it together? This essay was originally a product of, I want to say the first or second writing exercise I ever did here at Stanford. It was in the first creative nonfiction class I took with Ed Porter. And right before we had read our first braided essay, and that was Joanne Beard's Fourth State of Matter, which was something I was very intimidated to try to replicate, but it was very inspiring to look at it as something of a masterpiece of what a braided essay should be. So this is my first attempt at a braided essay. (laughs) I think the prompt was to write about an influential figure in your life. And people in the class chose all sorts of interesting things. The week prior, I had just had the last encounter that I'd had with this friend from high school. And a lot of ambivalence was stirring in my mind. And I tried to capture that ambivalence in a piece that had a structure of multifacets. So what is it that you find appealing about the braided essay structure? Being new to creative writing made the braided essay seem very foreign, but easy to latch on to because it's not something that is quite on the narrative heavy side of writing and not quite on the lyrical other end of the spectrum, but it's a good way of showing exactly the coincidences that can happen just in everyday life. And the other braided essays that I've read are magical because of the way that they compare two things that are seemingly, two or more things that are seemingly unrelated, but the human mind will just jump to the connections between them. So they don't, you don't have to draw the parallels for the reader. You can let them experience those parallels and how they fit into their own lives. I think one of the things that I really was struck with reading the first examples of braided essays that I did was just how much the writer gets to trust the reader. And just by putting things next to each other, they can pull out very interesting facets. Yeah, I think that's true, that um, a lot of the meaning of the work is sort of interstitial or happening in between in these like ellipses and jumps. Um, And that there is a lot of trust and faith being placed in the reader, uh, but also freedom too, to sort of make these connections and intuitions. Um, And I think that does sort of connect to, you know, how the human mind works and how we process our own lives, right? I mean, (laughs) form, form in general in writing is always, I think, sort of trying to capture something in sort of artificial form, trying to capture something about real life. Right. And the way that form influences meaning is also something that the braided essay just gives you. And so as a like beginning writer, um, that was, it was just very helpful in terms of how do I start to even think about using form to convey meaning? 
well, here's this structure that like you really don't have to be very experienced with to just jump in and try. Right. And it's it's always it's always more fun to to make meaning well, I think indirectly and and, right, and through right. style or through structure <laughs> than to just like come out and say like this is what this experience meant and just sort of pin a label on it. And like that's that. yeah, that's exactly how I've been instructed to write for my whole life. Um, Thesis statements. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing that JP is really trying to be out of me is how are you going to convey something beautifully to a reader without thesis statements and without the five paragraph essay rule that has been so heavily instructed to pretty much everyone coming into writing at this age. So did you know um, when you were writing about this, this guy from high school that the other element was going to be classical music, Suzuki training, was that always going to be the sort of other thread? I didn't know that training would be a part of it or training and sex ed were kind of this idea of intended curriculum or imposed teaching. And I knew, though, that I wanted to write about him. And I also glaringly knew that he was related to like my classical music experience in high school just because we were in orchestra together. So I have a passion for music and I've always struggled to write about it because I feel like my passion surpasses my expertise. <laughs> so that was, it was kind of a, a fun way for me to uh, branch out and explore my feelings about music without playing something and feeling like I was falling short of whatever composer I was trying to play. Mm. Well, something that's really beautiful about this essay is that there is a lot of language about musical training that feels like it has all these other resonances and meanings about, you know, coming of age and relationships and sex. And, and I feel like as, as a, as a writer, you sort of have to balance on this edge between having these extra meanings without having them seem heavy handed or awkward. And I feel like it does a beautiful, the essay does a beautiful job of, striking that balance. Was that something that you struggled with in the drafting process or you sort of like felt you were? No, definitely. I struggled with that. And often when I'll revise my work, it's just about, for me, looking at the ways that different words can be interpreted and trying to be very intentional about the, the rhetoric and the way it's coming off to the reader. So I'll just have my friends read it or my teachers or whomever and point out what, to me, what is too heavy or not uh, obvious enough. It's something that I have a bit of intuition about, but definitely something that has to be taught to me as well because it is about your audience. And so for me, I can't just assume what my audience is going to make of my language. It's been really helpful to consult my peers and my teachers in that matter. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's why we have workshops. That's why we show work to our friends because there are things that might seem totally obvious in our head that make, you know, do not register at all for anyone outside of our brain. (laughs) You know, something else I really admire about this essay is the um, 
understatement of certain aspects of it, particularly in the way that the relationship with Alexander is portrayed. There are a few sentences there, like the sentence about um, dead deadbolts and floorboards, and then also I think the, the moment in the car with his hand, which, I mean, those those very brief passages suggest so much mm-hmm. about this relationship. And and I guess... And but the, and 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 I and it's just I, it feels very mature as like writerly uh, it, it feels very mature to just know that 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 that's enough right. when you could probably write thirty pages you know on each of those passages. So I'm just curious, like, is that is that understatement something that you arrive at, at through revision, or is that sort of your natural mode? Interestingly enough, those passages were started off even more understated because this was something that was hard for me to write about because it was so intimate and so at times embarrassing or it was basically the most vulnerable thing that I had let someone else see. So it started out as even more convoluted and less removed from the situation. And the instruction that I was given was to trust that the reader has been through something similar or it's a trope that's very familiar to people. So you don't have to be too obvious about it, like you were saying. But I wasn't going out there to write a sex scene. In fact, it's more of a meditation on what is unsure and what is ambivalent about these instances when I feel something is wrong, but I also feel like I want to be doing it. There is a certain universe. What's the word I want? Yeah, universality. Universality, yes, exactly. Yeah, there is a certain universality to those themes. So even though I was backed off of it first, at first, when I was kind of given permission, and I guess I let myself uh, have permission to say what I was doing and say what happened, that gave it a bit more depth. I think that sounds like really great, teacherly advice. Yes, for sure. Um, And I I think specifically for the genre of nonfiction to sort of know that, yeah, of course, people have had these experiences or analogous experiences. So that makes me think, like, what has your experience been um, thus far as a writer of nonfiction and and being in in nonfiction classes with the sort of um, just sort of the, the vulnerability of sharing this kind of work, which to me, as someone who's primarily a fiction writer, seems more vulnerable than sharing fiction or poetry because there's mm-hmm. there's the absence of any pretense, you know, that it's not about you. There's no speaker, there's yeah. no narrative, you know. Um, what has that what has that been like? Well I found in the first class that I took here, it's just an entry level, like creative nonfiction class, and everyone was so intimidated by the joint sharing aspect of the class. But the thing that that taught me was that the more detailed and specific you got with your writing, the more your peers could relate to it just because they can latch on to those exact feelings. But if you leave it more vague, uh, it will kind of roll off the reader as something that's not as important. And so the struggle for everyone going through that process early on in a writing career, I think has been just knowing and believing in the fact that 
your experiences will be interesting to someone. That's a huge hump that everyone has to get over. Um, There's a little bit of ego that I had to lose in terms of writing more coy and writing like more sarcastically or ironically to try to be funny myself and to show the reader that, you know, I can, I can be serious, but I'm actually just joking. (laughs) And that was immediately turned down by (laughs) JP. And he said, this is not effective because the substance of it is lost or it's diluted when you're not genuine about what you're saying. Right. When there's like the self-protectiveness. Yeah. I definitely still have a lot of that. And it's the way that I communicate otherwise. But JP sometimes calls our Laventhal sessions therapy because (laughs) what a lot of it is, is me decoding the language that I've used, either the voice or the tense or the mood of the language that I've used and asking what that will make my audience think of and what that says about me and my experience. Well, I think it's one of the cool things about writing that um, genuineness and sincerity and rawness and honesty are actually usually achieved through a lot of effort, right? Like the first attempt might actually be really (laughs) superficial and self-protective and you actually have to work past all that. I definitely have to work past that. Still do. (laughs) It's a never-ending process. Um, Maybe the last thing I'll ask you about is I'm curious about the, the, um, well, actually, I also wanted to ask you, this is my musical literacy coming through Mm -hmm. here, but in terms of like the structure of this piece, would you consider this as having a fugue-like structure or was that something you were interested in playing with? Because I was thinking, oh, that last scene in the car is kind of like a coda, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the structure of the piece was playing, definitely playing off of the structure of something musical and lyrical, but I wasn't intentionally, I wasn't trying to mimic a fugue exactly. I even wrote that scene like later on, but I knew that I wanted it to, when I explained the structure of a fugue, sort of draw a parallel with the structure of an essay. And that was supposed to be sort of this comment on learning to play as a parallel for learning to write and learning to read, because I talk about my like sort of illiteracy with music and not being very comfortable reading music, but like knowing how it should feel and sound. So that was a tool for me to to guide my hand on what should be like a repraise or a, like you said, a coda at the end, kind of a recognition of what's come before, a repetition of a theme. And that's definitely explained in the, the fugue example. Um, but <laughs> again, I'm just, I'm intimidated by like music and music structure. So I know that I would never like, be able to do that exact justice. Right. <laughs> well, in some ways, it's maybe cooler for it to be sort of more loosely analogous than trying to exactly Hopefully. reproduce. Then you might just get lost in the you know, minutiae of that. Um, but then I, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was that coda. And 
uh, about the sort of space given in the essay to Alexander's mom. I thought yeah. that was a really interesting digression at the end there. And and in a way, it was a it, it felt like a very generous move mm-hmm. because, you know, you could have dwelt more on these kind of thoughts of like things he did wrong or or you know, but to just to, to 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 devote so much space to thinking about how he might have played for his mom in these, you know, last days of her life. Like I just wonder sort of where you said you wrote that part later, like where where that where that final choice sort of came out of. Right. The generosity to any subject, in my mind, is required for something that I truly feel hung up about. And I went into this piece not knowing exactly if I would find answers to how I was feeling about the situation, about doing things that I don't necessarily identify with now or would do the same thing now. As a 14-year-old, as as someone like at an age that everyone is doing that sort of stuff. And that was just a product of my actual feelings of insecurity surrounding my blame towards either Alexander or towards my younger self. And I think the the ending came to me really just out of a point of letting go and trying to explain how I truly was unsure of how to feel when I was sitting in the car with someone who just lost someone so important to them, knowing that I was going into it expecting something of an an acknowledgement about the power imbalance that we had previously explored, but now feeling this sense of heaviness when thinking of him as just another person whose whose actions can be just as ill-informed as my own. Much like the sort of understatement I was talking about earlier, I feel like that maturity and that generosity is something that takes a lot of writers a long time (laughs) to arrive at. Thank you. Honestly. It's been really a product of people telling me I can do that. So it's been enormously helpful for me to have supportive teachers who acknowledge when I'm when I should be calling a spade a spade and then when I should be using more double perspective to make something that other people will believe and other people will see that I'm thinking very critically about myself. Yeah. Well, all right, kids, study with Ed Porter and J.P. Grasser. That's that's the takeaway um, from today's part. episode. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Sophia, and sharing your work with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches, Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. 
Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.